Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity and respect. And my guest today is Dr. David Rock. He's the director of the Neuro Leadership Institute, a global initiative bringing neuroscientists and leadership experts together to bring a new science for leadership development. With operations in 24 countries, the Institute also helps large organizations operationalize brain research in order to develop better leaders and managers. He's also the author of the business bestseller, Your Brain at Work, which was published by Harper Business in 2009. Dr. Rock, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Catherine. Good to be here with you. You know, when I read your book, Brain at Work, and I also read Quiet Leadership, I really thought that some of the ideas, maybe all of the ideas that you talk about in the book are so relevant to relationships and divorce and negotiation of all kinds when relationships matter. Do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in hindsight, it's, it's, it's very central, I think, the ideas in the book to, uh, any kind of difficult relationship. I didn't set out to write it that way. I set out to write a book to help people kind of get on better at work by understanding the brain and other people's brains. And inevitably a big factor of that, you know, is the, the emotions people experience and the way that those really drive our behavior. So it, yeah, in the end, it's, it's very relevant. Of course it's relevant because I believe that, and you're the expert, not I, but I believe that the brain research shows that all decision making is made in the emotional part of the brain, even which, you know, pair of socks to wear or whether or not to have tuna or chicken for lunch. I mean, the first thing to say about the brain is there's no particular region of the brain that does any one thing, but there, but there are complex networks. So if you think of, a, think of a brain as a city, in the city, there's no one place where sales happens, right? right. <laughs> sales happens <laughs> everywhere. There's no one place where violence happens. There's no one place where you know love happens. But all those things, you could, you've got networks of those things in a city, uh, you know, relationship networks, you know, where people meet up. Um, and it's, it's a lot like that in the brain. There are these really, really complex networks. And it, it does turn out that every decision we make is, is massively driven by things that we can't consciously access, our non-conscious resources and mem- memories. You know, every, every book we've read, everything we've bought, every decision we've made. All of that is stored deep in there. And what we, what we tend to access most easily is kind of the feelings about those memories. So if we, if we meet someone new and we, you know, we feel like we like them, they probably remind us of other people we've liked before. We remember the feelings. So we, so we do go on feelings a huge amount. We go on unconscious responses all the time. And it's, it's true that just making logical decisions without any emotions is, is actually impossible. There is, there is no way to divorce the, Emotional responses from, uh, you know, from just pure cognition, they're absolutely intertwined. So that's, that's very true. And I think that for people when they're divorcing or again, when they're negotiating where feelings are such a big part of it anyway, it's very hard for people sometimes to get through the, I don't know, the first blush of the feelings of reactivity, anger, hurt, betrayal, and reach, you know, behind that to something maybe more meaningful or long standing. Why is that? 
Wow, that's a big that's a big part of it and a big conversation. And it's I mean it's central in our work with with leaders as well as they're trying to like make difficult decisions and get people to respond to them you know, positively and all that. Look, the, the way it works is there's a there's a seesaw type relationship between essentially the the network of the brain for thinking well about things, thinking consciously about things, thinking rationally. It's this network. You can think of it as working memory. So you're, you're working on a task, and and a good metaphor is doing math. So if you're you know, trying to calculate how long this radio show should go for, you've got to use this network, this working memory network to, to kind of think about your start and end time, put it all together. So this, this working memory network, essentially, this is in a seesaw relationship to emotions, to particularly strong emotions. The stronger an emotional response, um, literally the fewer resources you have for this network. So the limbic system, which is more involved in, in strong emotional responses, this network, when this network fires up, it literally pulls away oxygen and glucose from the prefrontal cortex, which is the, the seat of, of good thinking. And the challenge is strong emotions, you know, make it almost impossible to, to think new thoughts or to be reflective at all. You're much more reactive. And so it's, you know, there's a lot more to say about that, but this, this process is really difficult. And you can, you know, you can put someone in a scanner and watch what their brain does and you'll have them see different images, you know, a cow, a circle, a square, and, you know, watch what their brain does, nothing in particular. Maybe a dog, you'll see a, uh, you know, a, a nice reward response in a, one region of the brain. And then you'll show them a really angry face uh, as a picture. And you'll see this network light up, the limbic system. And th- as this network lights up, you see this reduced resources in the network for essentially everything very human, everything conscious. This prefrontal network is about deliberate thinking, decision-making, understanding ideas, solving problems, all that. And, you, you know, you literally see that as you detect what's called a threat you get reduced resources for the prefrontal. And and this, of course, is on a continuum. So a slight threat will do it a bit, but, uh, you know, a strong threat will do it a lot. You know, Catherine, we've all got friends where we know there's certain topics we can't bring up, right? right. You know, we, we've got a friend where if we bring up this holiday we went on or something, they immediately go into kind of this strange mental state. And, and we all have these triggers that kind of set us off, right? And this is a strong threat state. And obviously, the breakup of a long-term relationship is, you know, likely to be a strong trigger, not a mild trigger like seeing an angry face. It's going to be a strong trigger, and it's just going to almost shut down your ability to think new, in new ways or process new information, um, and and just be much more reactive. Wow, I think what you're basically saying is that the, when people have strong negative feelings, that their capacity to think really and and their capacity to process in an intellectual way is reduced or eliminated i guess in some circumstances is that right yeah absolutely absolutely um and they make a lot of cognitive errors so you know think about this if you have teenage kids right um and the, you know your daughter if i've got a 15 year old daughter if she's upset or angry and i'm trying to talk to her she literally doesn't hear what i'm saying yeah I have a 15-year-old like, daughter, too. I know exactly what right. you're talking about. <laughs> right, right. And it's not just that it doesn't care or is trying not to hear or is being annoying. Like, I'll literally say, you know, did you pick up your keys in the bedroom? And, you know, she literally won't, her brain, like, won't process that because it's it's in overdrive processing other things. You know, it's processing how much she hates you at that time. And the, the brain can't, you know, a conscious brain can't do very much at once. It can really only do one thing at a time. So if if there's cognitive overload from from a threat response and, you know, all this thinking going on about, you know, why you hate someone and how bad they are and all this stuff. You, you, you make cognitive errors as people are talking to you. And you also mistake things that are maybe neutral for negative. So if you're, you know, if you're already angry or upset, 
And something that's somewhat benign, you assume is negative. Something slightly negative, you assume is, you know, really negative. And even something positive may be reappraised down to negative. So that happens as well. So you make errors in other people's intentions. It's very hard to just think clearly. And, and all these things really get in the way of good uh, deliberative rational thinking. You know, there's so much in what you just said there. And I think it's incredibly true that certainly in my experience when dealing with divorcing people, that they are constantly reading everything as negative, even when it clearly isn't intended to be that. And so it makes it very hard for people to have these conversations. And yet, you know, people yearn to do it, you know, yearn to be able to talk in a calmer, more collaborative way with someone who has been their partner for years, could be the other parent of their children, and you know, for whom they've had a lot of respect and love over the years. And are there techniques or, or methodologies that they or we as professionals working with them can help them put into place to help them have more collaborative conversations? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, the first thing is when strong emotions are there, once they kick in, there's not a lot you can do. So, you know, once your heart rate is up and you're feeling, you know, really feeling angry or upset, um, it's a bit like, it's a bit like alcohol in a way. You, if, you know, if once you've drunk two double scotches on an empty stomach, you've, you've, <laughs> you can't you're undrink for a them. Ride. Yeah, exactly. You're going for a ride and that ride's going to last a few hours at least. And it's like that with strong emotions. Once they kick in, you're going to go for a ride and the effects of them will be felt for some time. What you can do is you can, you can grab them before they kick in and do a number of things. So you can, you can see that they're coming. And, and one of the best ways of that is like not putting yourself in a situation that you know is going to, you know, have that happen. So, you know, not having a meeting at five o'clock on Friday where you know you're exhausted and likely to get upset easy. So as something can, kind of starts to kick in, one thing you can do very quickly is, and, and it takes practice, but it's, it is something you can do. It's called reappraisal. And it's, it's altering your interpretation of events. The research is really clear that trying to suppress emotions doesn't work. So trying not to show that you're angry or upset is just kind of comical to someone, to the trained eye, <laughs> because you can completely see it. Um, and it turns out other people feel it as well, even untrained people. If you try to hold back emotions, other people's blood pressure literally goes up, and they, they actually start to make cognitive errors too. So, so just like, you know, going into a one-to-one discussion with someone and, and, you know, trying not to show your anger and all that, that really doesn't work. A reappraisal is about changing your interpretation of events. And it's difficult to do once you're already upset. So you've got to kind of think about it ahead of time. But what's a, you know, what's a different interpretation of a conversation you're about to have? You know, hey, maybe this is an opportunity to gain some positive ground so you can get some of the things that you want. Or maybe this is an opportunity to, you know, show the kids that we're adults. Or maybe this is an opportunity to, so, you know, something positive, right? um, that, that's important to you. And, and the more you focus on that, the, you know, the, re- the less the emotions will kick in. But you've got to kind of do that ahead of time before the strong emotions kick in. That's important. You have to do the, the reappraisal before you're already on the road of deep reactivity. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And reactivity, the timing on reactivity is important. Like it's a little bit like, you know, using your foot as a brake on a motorcycle. Like when you're, when you're standing still, your foot can hold you there. When you start moving a tiny bit, your foot sort of does something, but not much. And as soon as you're moving at all, your foot is useless as a brake. And it's like that with strong emotions. Like when you're standing still and there's no emotions, you know, you can um, use strategies like this quite well. Just as you start to move, like in the first few seconds before as an emotion kicks in, you can definitely reappraise. But once the emotion kicks in, you kind of, 
you, you know, the, the network that you need in your brain to reappraise is actually the network that reduces when a threat kicks in. So it's a, it's a problem. So you've got to do it quickly and be kind of really observant. And being tired or sick or really stressed or, you know, any of these things also reduces your ability to do this. So I would say, you know, have difficult conversations early in the week, early in the day after, you know, when you're rested and, um, you know, you're much more likely to have a, a positive conversation as well. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. We're here on WBOX 1460 AM, alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30. Or perhaps you're listening on the podcast version, Divorce Dialogues, which is available at divorcedialogues.com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. And we're talking today with Dr. David Rock about the brain science of divorce and negotiation and reactivity. And Dr. Rock, you know, one of the things that you've been talking about is making sure that you have your conversations at a time and place that makes sense. And, you know, I, I remember reading in your book that also doing it at a time when you've eaten makes a lot of sense also. Yes. Yeah. Anytime you've, you're well resourced, you know, think of a time where you could sit down and, and write well or, or do a spreadsheet well or, like, like, think of a time when you're just, you know, you're really feeling yourself and you're able to focus well. Those are the times that you want to have a difficult conversation. You're much more likely to succeed. It sort of sounds obvious, but it's actually very important that you pick the time and, you know, and place to be able to, you know, maintain that more positive state. You know, and, and I do think that going in with a goal, a positive goal, uh, is also important. So going, you know, and that's a type of reappraisal. But going in with a positive goal for the conversation of, you know, you want to make progress on one thing or you want to build a solid relationship to be able to, you know, to move forward. I think having that positive goal is very important. I mean, one, one conversation that's very interesting to have, it's difficult and it's probably best early on in a process is to agree on how you want the, the separation or divorce to look like. Agree on kind of the rules of the road. Um, how, how do you want it to look? In, in terms of your relationship going forward, do you want it to be civil? Do you want it to be friendly? Do you want it to be, um, you know, how, how do you want it to be? And the more I think you can agree on some common goals, the research shows this, the more you have these common goals, it matters to you both, uh, the easier it is to stay in that more positive state. And uh, Dr. Rock, do you think it's important to articulate those goals rather than to have them just be implicit and implied? Oh, very, yeah, articulate them often, early and often, yeah articulate them early and often, you know, keep coming back to them. Shared goals are a really powerful way of bringing people onto the same team. And this is one of the challenges. You you know, you're on the same team as someone forever. Now you're on opposing teams. And that feeling is, you know, can be very, very strong of being in, in an out group with someone that you were, you know, in the in group with before. Whereas when you create a shared goal, you come back into being in, in the in group with that person. You're like on the same side of the table. You know, hey, we both want to get through this divorce in a way that the kids you know, and not just okay, but are actually, you know, impressed with, with uh, you know, our skills. Or that, like when you have a, a shared goal, you come to the same side of the table in a very powerful way. In the same way that, like, the, the saying, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. When you, you're trying to achieve something with someone, you go back to processing what they say much better, um, and you're, you're much more likely to accurately involve them. So I think that's probably one of the most important things is identifying some shared goals for uh, for, the, for the change in, in, in situation that's happening. You know, I think that's really interesting because when you think about it, when you're negotiating anything with anyone, you are working with shared goals of some sort. We're mm. trying to achieve something together. And yet we, you know, we have this imagery. We're on the opposite sides of the table, different, you know, the other side. And, and, and I think that's so unhelpful, really, when you think about it. Why am I even talking to you if we don't have a shared goal? 
it's incredibly unhelpful. The metaphor of being on the other side of the table is incredibly unhelpful. The research on this is quite strong. There are five situations that the brain is tracking all the time in, in our social environment. Um, I write about them a lot in, in your brain at work. Um, and, and one of them is, is relatedness, which is, am I, am I related to this person? Like, am I on the same team as this person? Is this person in, in an opposing team? Um, and the way the brain is wired is if someone's not on our team, then they're a danger. If someone's not on our team, then they want to, they basically want to steal our resources and kill us. And someone who feels like they're on an opposing team, essentially, or, or you know, on the other, other side of the table, uh, essentially what the brain does is it discounts a huge amount of what they say, uh, doesn't really process very well what they say. We want to see that person lose and we, we, we subconsciously automatically focus on like, uh, that person losing and we have no empathy for them as well. So someone who's in our out group on an opposing team, the brain kind of treats them emotionally like a, like a block of wood. My God, um, you're so describing how some of my clients feel about their soon to be former spouses. And just like mm. they go from being, you know, my lover, my friend, my intimate partner, my co-parent to the enemy and everything mm. they say and everything they do is suspect. You know, how's this yeah, going to hurt me? And that, and, and until you kind of, address that if you don't if you don't address that everything is difficult because the way the brain processes an enemy is completely different to the way the brain processes someone who's on your team so i mean i think that's the that's the number one issue is you can get people to find a common goal um even if it's not a huge thing but you know a common goal like we want to do this in six months we want to keep the no offense to you catherine but you know legal fill you know legal bills under under x amount yeah um no offense taken yeah, we want to get the legal bills under X amount. We want to do it in six months and we want the kids to be proud of us. Like those are three really amazing goals, right? If you're able to just agree on that and then keep coming back to those, um, you'd have much more of a framework for a conversation than, you know, this is my enemy. But, you know, finding those goals can be hard. But the research on this is really, really strong that you, it changes the whole game when you, when you work within that kind of framework. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm talking today with Dr. David Rock about brain research, the brain, and negotiation and divorce. And Dr. Rock, would you give our listeners your contact information where they could find more information out about your work, your books? Yeah, for sure. Um, my main book is Your Brain at Work, and you'll find that on Amazon really easily um, or any, any good bookstore. So it's uh, Your Brain at Work by David Rock. My personal website is davidrock.net, so D-A-V-I-D-R-O-C-K.net. And you'll find lots about my work there and the different books I've written, the work we do with organizations as well. And um, that's probably the best portal to uh, to learn more. Thank you. And, you know, I imagine that I ha- we have a listener out there and they're thinking, that sounds really great. I would really like to be able to change my uh, conversation with my spouse, with my ex-spouse or, you know, anyone else really. What can I do? I, I know what I need to do on my side. What can I do to change anyone else's behavior? Is there anything they can do? Yeah, a little bit. You know, the way we hold people in our mind uh, has a big impact on, you know, on how they are. So if we if we think someone is fixed in their ways and is never going to change, then we listen to them a certain way. If we believe someone, you know, can change and, and can improve, and uh, then, then it, you know, it makes a difference. So I think that the way we hold someone else in mind is, is really important. The, you know, the reactions we have to other people really drive our relationships. We can't control other people's reactions. We can, uh, you know, we can work on our own. I mentioned relatedness. There, there are four other domains. I think it's really useful to to be able to understand and recognize as we negotiate and and, and deal with people. Uh, one of those is status. Status is a is mm-hmm. essentially a feeling of 
of who's better and who's worse. So important. Uh, when we, yeah, it's very important. And, you know, the, the trouble with a, you know, a marriage breakup is, is you know, each party is kind of making the other person wrong. Each party is, you know, identifying the other as lower status and, you know, they're, they're broken or they're wrong or they did bad. And we react to status attacks very intensely. We immediately fight back with one of our own. So, you know, recognizing your own response to a status attack or, or that you're creating a status attack in someone else is, is interesting. Uh, certainty is another one. So uh, certainty is the ability to predict what's happening moment to moment. Obviously, in a relationship breakup, a lot of uncertainty, which is a problem. Uh, autonomy is another one. Um, autonomy is a feeling of control uh, that, you know, you're able to make choices. I mentioned R for relatedness. And the final one is fairness. And fairness is going to be a big one in relationship breakups, feeling treated unfairly. Maybe you were there for your partner through lots and lots of things and, and they haven't been there for you. So fairness. Now, so th- these five issues they actually spell out a word. It's a SCARF, S-C-A-R-F, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness. These five things are what are what really driving our behavior moment to moment, particularly strong emotions. And, you know, if you recognize that you're having a strong reaction, a strong negative reaction to any of these, just in recognizing it can help reduce it. And, you know, start to think about what's the, what's the scarf response that you're having to someone and what response are maybe they having to you? Uh, are they having a big fairness reaction or a status reaction? I mean, as you, as you think in these terms, you can identify so what's really ticking yourself off or ticking someone else off and find ways to balance that out. So if there's a fairness response, maybe you can provide more information, create more certainty, and that will balance that. Or if someone's feeling like really attacked and you're attacking their status, maybe you know, give them more choices, more control, let them be more in charge, uh, more autonomy. That can balance that out. So that's a way of thinking about that. There are these five situations that create strong emotions. And I think you can, you can detect these in yourself. You can detect these in others just with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of understanding. Have you found that being able to apply these, this awareness and this knowledge in your personal life has really made a difference in your personal relationships? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that in all personal relationships, there's a huge amount of just wasted energy, wasted human energy that's put into um, unnecessary threats. You know, it's one thing to feel treated unfairly and, and be upset. It's another thing to be treated unfairly when actually you weren't being treated unfairly and you're imagining something that they did was negative when their intent was to, you know, support you or something. I think, you know, more than three quarters of the time when we're upset, it's it's actually misreading someone's intent or misunderstanding someone's purpose or, or just not knowing the whole story. And, you know, mostly people are actually kind and, and generous and or at least not horrible. And so I think a lot of the time we misread our, uh, you know, our, our lovers, our partners, and also our friends, you know, responses, reactions, decisions. And we end up just, you know, spinning our wheels. So I think that the less time we spend in the threat response, um, actually, the longer we live, literally, uh, the smarter we are and the better off the world is overall. And, uh, you know, the, the threat response, the threat response literally shortens our lives. We, we want to minimize it as much as we can. And uh, the more language we have for the brain, the more we can actually catch these things early. Um, language for our mental experience is a tool that helps us to reappraise quickly as we see these things coming on. You know, I think that that's really an, an incredible fact that you just said that I think what you said was more than three quarters of the time when we perceive a threat because of somebody else's behavior, we're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, we're misreading it. Um, we don't know the whole story. We don't know their true intent. Um, we don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and, and, you know, they're probably just doing this to protect themselves or because of something that you did. Um, 
And the more you understand that, that the brain you know, accidentally determines threats,、uh, the more you can be curious, kind of dig further and say, well, you know, what do I want to achieve here? Is there a positive way forward? And I think just always begin with a shared goal and go back to those goals. What is it we want to achieve here? That's the key. That's great, Dr. David Rock. Thank you so much for being our guest on Dialogue on Divorce. It's been a pleasure to have you. No, thanks for having me. It's been interesting,、uh, interesting to talk us through. Appreciate it.